Welcome to the Conversations That Matter podcast. My name is John Harris. Well, it finally happened. The governor of West Virginia has invited counties in the western part of Virginia to come and join his state where they will escape the tyranny currently unfolding in the state of Virginia and enjoy pro-life representation, gun rights, and pro-business policies. And uh, for those of you, like myself, who live in Virginia, um, we, we can hold out. Maybe this is more symbolic than anything else, but still, we, we can hold out. We can try to see if maybe we can join West Virginia and secede. And uh, Jerry Falwell, actually, I saw, was talking about it about an hour ago on the radio. Uh, I think it was somewhere in Virginia. So, um, you know, the Democrats control Richmond and the Beltway in D.C., so they are part of the hegemony now. I mean, look, majority culture now in Virginia, if you're counting by population, I mean, they're, they're left now. So does that boost our intersectionality points? Those of us who are conservative, who we, we enjoy maybe the sport of uh, shooting or we just want firearms for self-defense or hunting, can we now be an oppressed class? I don't know, we'll see. Um, doesn't seem to be happening though in the eyes of the mainstream media. And speaking of mainstream media, some things never change. I noticed a couple minutes before going live, um, I'm not going to give all the details of this uh, because I want to actually do an episode in which I interview the person who was speaking at this event. But long story short, there was an event that I happened to attend a few weeks ago and uh, one of the speakers who was there, um, did he did a speech and there was a journalist there to uh, do a story, and it's in the Washington Post on uh, partially on this man's speech, and uh, and the journalist just made something up that did not happen. <laughs> I um, I was there, and uh, you know I looked at the article from the Washington Post. I looked at uh, an email that was sent uh, from the speaker who had spoken that day, and he said, "I don't remember this uh, certain event ever happening." I said, "I was there. I watched the whole thing. It never happened." So uh, journalists still uh, not not necessarily the most honest uh, profession, but uh, you know there's there's a lot of good people in bad professions. So it doesn't mean all journalists are necessarily liars. But um, but anyway, it was it, I've had a few instances in my life where I've been at an event. This I think is the third major one I can think of where I was somewhere and I read the news story about it and it was completely untrue <laughs> or it got certain facts wrong that were just inexcusable. It wasn't something like, well, you misheard. It was actually you fictitiously made something up. And um, and this is the third time in my life I've seen uh, major media do that. So I, you know, a little bit of mistrust for the media, uh, you know, yeah, I think there's a justifiable reason some conservatives feel that way. Uh, but anyway, uh, and in other news, and this is what we're gonna talk about mainly today, some major Southern Baptists figures have come out pretty strong against critical race theory as of late, which is a very good thing. Uh, Owen Strand, and that is Strand, by the way. I know it looks like Strachan if you're watching, but Owen Strand, who is a professor at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, put out a four-part critique of critical race theory through the Pathios blog. Jason uh, Keith Allen, who is the president of the seminary where Strand teaches, and Albert Moeller, who is the president of Southern and also running for president of the Southern Baptist Convention, both retweeted this four-part series. And I did read it. Uh, I, I skimmed parts of it, but it, it was good. It, it was, uh, I think, um, kind of entry-level stuff, which is is really uh, good and important uh, and foundational. Um, and, uh, and so I just want to commend that. I do, though, have a concern, and I want to um, flesh this out for you. The same way that the Baptist faith and message has been used as a shield against legitimate critiques, criticisms, concerns, I think that it is possible that something like Strand's four-part series or similar blog yet to be released could also be used as a shield. Let me give you an illustration. 
Imagine you're part of an organization and this organization has a problem with uh, infidelity. It's prevalent. Uh, perhaps it, it even goes to the point of sexual abuse in certain circumstances. And let's say that uh, you're concerned, you're part of this organization, you work for it. And so you put out a four-part four series on um, biblical fidelity. And you want to uh, claim that biblical fidelity is, is the right way to go. Infidelity is wrong. And let's say that those who are employing um, abusers and people who uh, are not um, faithful to their wives, let's say that they retweet your four-part four series and they say, this is a must-read, I agree, I approve, I hate infidelity, but they never actually take actions to correct and to, let's say in some cases where it's bad, fire those who are unfaithful and perhaps abusive, um, we, we would say that's hypocrisy. And so this is my encouragement. It's been now, we're, we're over two years out since the MLK 50. I mean, the Dallas statement, I think now, what are we, you know, that's a year and a half ago or so. We're time, a lot of time has been given and uh, there are still folks who are employed at some of these institutions who uh, have not, re I, don't, I don't know of any that have actually uh, recanted any of their beliefs. Um, they're still teaching there. And uh, you know, in some cases, I know we're told, because I've been told that there's been correction behind closed doors, and I don't know the nature of that, but there's no public um, display of correction because uh, perhaps it would be embarrassing. I don't really know why. Uh, but, uh, but the statements that were made that are concerning and really, exemplify a pattern of statements made in favor of critical race theory ideas. Um, these have not been uh, at all revoked, recanted, uh, addressed uh, sufficiently. Um, not even like 1% <laughs> sufficiently. I mean, we, we have a long way to go as far as those who are running this denomination actually coming to terms with the errors that are right under their nose. Uh, in fact, there was um, an article I, I mentioned last uh, week when I did the podcast uh, of an instance at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary where a, a certain aspect of critical race theory potentially uh, was being advocated there on campus. And, uh, and so this is the kind of thing that I think concerns me a little bit. And uh, I want to say I'm very approving uh, of this, and, and I, we should all approve of this, but we shouldn't rest and say, oh, good. Whew, they're against critical race theory. Well, maybe they are in theory, or maybe it's a good political move to make right now, but time will tell. And the way that you need to measure this is those who are preaching critical race theory, are they uh, correcting uh, their ideas? Are they preaching against it? Now, it's not enough to just uh, not preach it anymore. Are they actually undoing the damage they've done? Uh, this week, I, I received word from uh, students, and I've heard this from more than one source inside Southeastern, that there are certain classes, uh, and one of them in particular uh, is taught by someone who has uh, taken a lot of heat for promoting liberation theology, uh, where you're not allowed to record anymore. And, and I'm not here to discuss the ethics of that or the, the legal policy. That is a change, though. I was a student... Uh, up through 2018, I never once saw a classroom uh, where you weren't allowed to record. A lot of students did just because that's how you take notes. In fact, I've been at five academic institutions. I've never once heard a professor ever say that you can't record anything. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but this is a change. And those are the kinds of things that concern me. Um, is this movement going underground now? It looks like in some ways it is because people who have been public about it now 
uh, have been hurt in the social media world with uh, Lehman and the SBC. And uh, there's no correction though. There's no actual coming out against it and affirming that this is wrong. And what I specifically, what was said at my institution or what this professor has said was wrong. It's just kind of like cover it up. Don't talk about it. Don't talk about that professor. Circle the wagons around those professors. And, and then affirm um, something like this four part series from Owen Strand. Uh, that's what concerns me. Because if you don't root it out, at the grassroots level, then it's still there. And it's just as dangerous as it ever was. It's influencing future pastors. It's just that we don't know about it as much as we did before. So um, that that's my concern about that. And I wanted to mention that. In light of this recent development, I thought today would be a good day to do something I've been asked a few times to do, which is to do a little bit of a crash course on critical race theory. And I wanna connect some of the dots for you to just show you where this is showing up in perhaps your church or your denomination, your institution you're part of, your seminary. Uh, because I don't think those dots are being connected. Uh, we're dealing with this on a very abstract level. I wanna get a little more concrete with you and show you uh, where this can show up. Now, the danger of doing this is critical race theory is developing. It's kind of in flux. Um, if you, let's say, did a critique on critical race theory, you may have to update it five years later or even sooner because uh, terms are changing, more information is um, changing the way that it operates. And it's not like a, a Mormonism or an Islam where you look at a solid state sacred text and you, you say this is diametrically opposed to what we know to be truth and you can engage it on rational grounds. This is a new paradigm for how to think for truth itself, uh, it changes literally everything. And so it's so fundamental. It's so, um, it, you're taking 12 intellectual steps back, you know, to, uh, to, to argue with someone of this postmodern critical race theorist um, persuasion that I think it confuses a lot of people. And that's maybe why it's hard to sometimes connect the dots. But I'm gonna do my best to, in layman's terms, as much as I can, provide you with some simple definitions. And I'm taking these from uh, Richard Delgado's Critical Race Theory book. You can read Derek Bell. Um, I recommend Richard Delgado's book because it's uh, the fullest treatment I know of. But uh, I, I do that with the recognition that things are changing even now. And that book has to be updated, probably. So um, hopefully you, you understand at least the basic principles uh, that are being utilized. And at the end of this video, you'll know how to recognize them when they show up in your church, identify them, and then uh, maybe to some extent refute them. Um, also, at the end of this critique, I'm going to play a video for you, which some of you might, might find shocking. Uh, there was um, a, an occurrence a few years ago, and it, it, it's related to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary where I went, uh, with a church plant that was close to the seminary, and uh, this particular church plant, like, like honestly a lot of the churches in that area, was on the social justice bandwagon. And I am going to connect this to my critique of critical race theory. I want to show you how uh, this, this occurrence, which was essentially a family being told that they were in generational guilt, generational sin, because of really the fact that they were white and they had a last name, which also was shared with another congregant's family who um, had the same last name and that family happened to be a minority uh, family. And, um, and the implication was, well, they were white, they had this last name, they must have owned this other family. 
and um, and this created all sorts of problems. And uh, there there was an interview put out today by enemies within the church. It's a, a shorter interview, but um, I have talked to uh, the the person um, James High is his name who uh, agreed to this interview. And I'm going to put the uncut uh, version out there. It's about 18 minutes, I believe. And you can watch that. And you can watch the effects of critical race theory uh, thinking and how uh, it shows up in a very um, concrete example. So that's my goal in putting that out there. And I'm going to talk more about that. But let's let's go through um, critical race theory first. Let's do the crash course here. What is critical race theory? What is it? Well, critical race theory... Uh, builds on the insights of two previous movements. I'm quoting from Richard Delgado's book, Critical Legal Studies and Radical Feminism. So Critical Legal Studies and Radical Feminism, to both of which it owes a large debt. It also draws from certain European philosophers and theorists such as Antonio Gramsci, Mikhail Foucault, Jacques Derrida, as well as from the American radical tradition exemplified by such figures as Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass, W.E.B., Du Bois, Cesar Chavez, Martin Luther King Jr., and the Black Power and Chicano movements of the 60s and early 70s. So there, you already can see that um, one of the difficulties with labeling something critical race theory is there's so many different ideas and traditions and figures that are sort of flowing in to this attempt to systematize a worldview, uh, which is still developing. So you have all these different traditions, and I think um, part of the confusion uh, over this whole battle in the SBC is when Resolution 9 passed, there, that was a gift in a way, because now we had critical race theory intersectionality to blame for a lot of the social justice concerns that we had. And we could trace those things back to Marxists. And the issue with that is that it's, it's kind of broader than just critical race theory in a way. Critical race theory is an attempt to build off of all these other ideas. And so if someone who doesn't know much about critical race theory, but they're a part of this American, as Delgado said, radical tradition, uh, they, they, they do something that they think is, um, you know, they, affirmative action, let's say. Uh, and then the conservatives will sometimes say, well, this is critical race theory. And they'll say, no, it's not. I, I don't even know about critical race theory. Well, the fact is it's consistent with critical race theory. It is. But that person may not have been aware of it. So whether they're aware of it or not, yes, they are uh, forwarding something uh, under the right uh, calibrations, at least, is a facet, is an application of critical race theory. Um, but it doesn't mean that person is thinking in critical race theorist terms about everything. It just means in this one instance, uh, they utilized uh, this tool that critical race theory uh, certainly uh, approves of in order to uh, create some, a situation in which the oppressed or the minority cultures have more of a shot. And perhaps uh, you can implement a quota and there's more of them now. And this is being done all over the Southern Baptist Convention in everything. It's just kind of part of the lay of the land. People don't recognize it because they don't associate it with critical race theory. So all that to say, um, when we are using these terms, we have to be mindful of that. And we have to explain it to people and say, well, look, I'm not saying necessarily that you are in every sense of the word a critical race theorist. Uh, what I am saying, though, is the ideas that you're pulling from uh, are consistent with critical race theory or they come from critical race theory or uh, critical race theory has the same goal. Um, so uh, I'm not 
saying that there aren't some real dyed-in-the-wool critical race theorists in the Southern Baptist Convention, because I believe there are, and I believe I've, uh, I, I've witnessed some of them. <laughs> and they probably need to be witnessed to. Um, but there are a lot of people who just, they, they don't know, and maybe they're purposely ignorant. At this point, they probably are. If, they, if, they're, if Resolution 9 is passed and you haven't uh, tried, I'm not talking about working class people, I'm talking about academics. If you're an academic and you haven't tried to really uh, figure out what this whole critical race theory, theory business is. I mean, you couldn't pick up Delgado's book and read it in a couple hours. Then you know, you, you, <laughs> that's a problem. That's a that's a that's a problem in and of itself that perhaps uh, needs to be addressed. But um, let, let's uh, let's define it though. And I'm I'm doing this more for those who don't have the time to go over all of this. Let's talk about critical legal theory, and we'll also mention feminism, civil rights thought, and ethnic studies. But uh, since Delgado said critical legal theory and feminism were the two mainstreams influencing critical race theory, we should understand them. Critical legal theory, according to Delgado, is uh, from the critical legal studies. And the group borrowed the idea of legal indeterminacy, the idea that not every legal case has one correct outcome. Instead, one can decide most cases either way by emphasizing one line of authority over another or interpreting one fact differently than the way one's adversary does. Now you see how this already is destroying the concept of truth. I mean, think about it. So you have a plaintiff, you have a defendant. You can just switch those roles, I guess. It just depends how good your lawyer is. So lawyers are just hired guns that work the angle for you. And uh, truth is just absolutely destroyed. Evidence, who cares about that? You can just interpret it differently. Um, this is is scary because we're seeing it show up in courtrooms. We're kind of used to that idea. In fact, it was one of the reasons years ago, and I, I respect Christian lawyers, but I, I just, I was going to go to law school. And I, I remember the first week um, when I was there, I was like, I don't know if I can do this. And it's not its not against uh, the, the legal profession. I think there's some good lawyers out there. Um, but uh, we, we've come to a point where, um, it, you know, it is like you're a hired gun if you're a lawyer in certain legal fields. And, and I, you know, how much of it is due to critical legal theory? I mean, I think that probably does contribute. Um, there's new strategies that are needed to combat settler forms of racism that were gaining ground. The strategy was to invent a language and use storytelling to revolutionize the legal system. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute because I know of a major Southern Baptist church, which I am not going to mention. Uh, but it, it is a church in which uh, they had a blog a couple years ago, and I, I read the blog. It was while I was at Southeastern. And in this blog, there was a case made for, it, it was a, a young man who had uh, killed someone. It was a murderer, and uh, as I recall. And the, the case was made in this blog, written by someone who worked for the church on the church website, that the jury should have taken into account police discrimination in the area and other factors that may have contributed to this crime. Now think about that with me for a moment. What does that do when you start allowing the stories, the quote-unquote experience, and that experiences can be subjective, into a court of law? Now I'm not saying there aren't tragic stories of discrimination, and some of them can't be verified. That's just the truth. Uh, but that's the way that this whole thing advances. Uh, if you can get someone to listen, that's why listening is so important to critical race theory. If you're in the majority culture, you just need to listen. You can't say anything. If you can listen to someone's story of being oppressed, you're required to believe them. That's why the Believe Women hashtag was so popular during the Kavanaugh hearings. You just got to believe them because they're part of this social class. They have their own truth, which cannot be questioned, and it should factor into legal proceedings.
That's how this stuff is dangerous. Now, um, feminism, uh, it says uh, from Delgado's book again, feminism's insights into the relationship between the power and the construction of social roles, as well as the unseen, largely invisible collection of patterns and habits that make up patriarchy and other types of denomination. So it, w really what the point of this is, is that uh, you know, it's not enough to just get equal pay. You gotta realize um, you're in a man's world, right? And it's been the patriarchy, this man's world has been around for thousands of years and it's just ingrained in our language and our habits and everything we do, we assume uh, the dominant role of men. That's the theory at least. And so uh, feminism has um, given us this gift of noticing that basically these, these oppressive structures, they're systemic and uh, they may not even be encoded in law anymore, but um, because of the habits of culture, um, they're, they're still there and we need to root them out. We need to find them and root them out. Well, now, you, according to critical race theory, and, and I realize that's, you can't say according to critical race theory, but according to this hodgepodge <laughs> uh, worldview that is currently in formation, that is trying to be formed, um, not only can we apply that logic from feminism to other social classes, but we can apply it to race specifically. So it's not just that women have been oppressed by men, but white hegemony has oppressed all the other minority cultures of the world. And it's in ways that we don't always notice, but we need to find them, we need to root them out. They're deep within our hearts. Uh, they're, uh, I mean, they're on a McDonald's menu, I guess. I mean, they're everywhere and we gotta find them. And, and so that's what they got from feminism, critical race theorists. Then there's uh, conventional civil rights thought. The movement uh, took a concern for redressing historical wrongs as well as the insistence that legal and social theory lead to practical consequences. Critical race theory also shared with it a sympathetic understanding of notions of community and group empowerment. The main thing that this gives critical race theory is the understanding that there is uh, an experience. You've heard the term like the black experience, for instance. There is a sort of a monolithic uh, culture that, um, I mean, if you deviate from the ideology of the culture, you're kicked out. If you're Clarence Thomas, well, you're not, you're, you're an Uncle Tom, you're not part of the black experience. But this is the black experience assumes you vote Democrat and, um, in the minds of the liberals who like to use that term, and it assumes a, a lot of things. But it's a, a um, identity uh, that is rooted in um, a culture that has experiences of suffering, uh, and many of them very legitimate experiences of suffering. Um, uh, it, it has um, a you know musical tradition. It has uh, a way of speaking. It has all these things, and so it takes that cultural element, and then it says, well, they also have not only do they have their music and food and all these things, they also have a way of viewing truth. They also have their truth, and and that's that's their experience. That's the black experience, and you could say the Asian experience uh, or the you know what pick whatever uh, group you want. Well, that's what. Um, conventional civil rights thought gave to critical race theory. And then you have ethnic studies. It took notions such as cultural, national group cohesion, and the need to develop ideas and texts centered around each other and its situation. So I'm gonna try to explain this briefly if I can. Uh, the best example I can give is in formative elementary school years, students used to have to learn something like American history. This pr produced group cohesion, patriotism, um, uh, you know, this identity of being an American that everyone shared. And now what we have more often than not, it's social studies, but there's also um, another movement. And depending on the school you go to, you could take uh, something like African-American um, history or Hispanic history, or you could take now in, in some cases, especially out in California, 
uh, an LGBTQ plus uh, history course of some kind. And, um, and they're not even histories as much as they are uh, social studies courses and group, they're group identity courses. Cause it's not just, here's what happened. It's also, and here we're going to distill for you, uh, some of the ideology that, um, this group, uh, belongs to or supports. And, and usually it's something left wing and, um, and, and that becomes part of it, how they behave. So sociologists have gotten involved in history, uh, very much so. And, uh, and so, um, the, the critique that used to be made about this is you're going to create all these little pockets of people with different identities who, uh, instead of having like an American identity, uh, as far as your, um, under your religion, hopefully, right? You have your, your religion, your Christian American identity. And then, um, under that, uh, you know, your family tradition, or, uh, if you're part of, uh, you came from another place, you know, that tradition will play into it. Well, now, um, it's no longer American identity can't be the primary identity. This is the, the really the big battle in America right now, to be honest with you, is um, is can can we all come around, uh, you know, and we're using things like symbols like the flag and the national anthem and so forth. Can we all come around these things and say we can unify? But there's so much division because there are all these subcultures that now are the primary um, ways to identify uh, groups. And and, and, you know, it's interesting, in 1960, 90% of the country uh, would have traced their ancestry back to Europe somewhere, exclusively, pretty much. And, uh, and it, I, there, there's a reason that most of the presidents, uh, you know, they were white. <laughs> um, most of the people that uh, were in control, the levers of industry and, and other fields, they were white. And that doesn't mean there weren't barriers to uh, minorities uh, becoming involved in those things. There were, and those were wrong in many instances. But... Um, I mean, just about probably every instance uh, that a barrier went up, it would have been wrong. But the, the point is that if you just study the prominent figures in different fields and in the American experience, quote unquote, you're, you're mostly going to be interacting with people that their ancestry traced, to, traced back to Europe. And, um, and that's not slighting anyone. That's just, that's just the, the way this um, particular country developed. Well, you can't really say that anymore. That's in and of itself now is racist. And part of the reason is because of critical race theory, but it was informed by ethnic studies. So um, th this is where we're going to start to get a little deeper here. The critical race theory movement is a collection of activists and scholars engaged in studying and transforming the relationship between race, racism, and power. The movement considers many of the same issues that conventional civil rights and ethnic studies take up, but places them in a broader perspective that includes economics, history, setting, group and self-interest and emotions and the unconscious. Unlike traditional civil rights discourses, which stresses incrementalism, critical race theory questions the very foundations of the liberal, liberal order, including equality uh, theory, legal reasoning, enlightenment rationalism, and neutral principles of the constitutional law. Uh, this is one of the concerns that um, James uh, Lindsay and uh, uh, Peter, and I can't remember his last name, uh, it starts with a B, but um, the two guys, uh, two, they're actually, uh, I think, agnostics, but two agnostics who have done a series of videos with Michael O'Fallon from Sovereign Nations. This is their concern. Uh, they're not Christians, um, but they're looking at what's happening in Christianity and in pretty much every other facet of the culture, and they're saying that this stuff is eating away at something that they're very concerned about. And one of the things is enlightenment rationalism. 
Um, and, and I think as Christians, we wouldn't maybe attribute that to the Enlightenment as much as we would to the Reformation. But, uh, you know, the, the idea that you can approach things using a scientific method, that mathematics actually um, works in the real world. I mean, these very things are being questioned as, well, did white people, did white European oppressors use these tools to uh, discriminate in some way or oppress? And um, if they did, then can, we can question those tools. We can question the, the correspondence theory of truth. We can question fundamental things that we all have to take for granted in order to live. In fact, fundamental things that critical race theory itself must assume. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of circular. Um, I mean, these tools, if, if rationalism was given by white Europeans somehow, um, and critical race theory then can't be rational if it's trying to deny that. So, so we're kind of in this, uh, this conundrum, but it's, it's postmodernism. And so um, it's, it's, it's a, uh, a battle that we have allies as far as Bible-believing Christians. We have allies that are approaching it a little bit differently. Um, in fact, in some cases, a lot differently. And their, con their concerns are, are different than ours. Um, but they're seeing some of the same things. And I would recommend those videos to you if you haven't seen them. Uh, intersectionality means the examination of race, sex, class, national origin, and sexual orientation and how their combination plays out in various settings. So very simply put, if you're someone who is, uh, let's say, a minority, uh, racially speaking, you already are oppressed in some way. Uh, if you also are um, a sexual minority, which is the new term that's being used, if you're someone who uh, is not a cisgendered person or you, you don't... Um, uh, have uh, romantic feelings for the opposite sex, well, then now you're oppressed doubly. Uh, and if you're left-handed, forget it. I mean, you could really add in every... I mean, th I think there's a reason that... Um, and, I, and look, I have two brothers who have celiac, so this is not a knock on, um, on gluten-free. I know there's legitimate concerns in the gluten-free movement, but it seemed like overnight, all of a sudden, all sorts of people that don't actually have a problem with gluten, they, it's like they want to act like there's some... I've, I've seen extreme cases where people want to act like there's... The, the, the gluten is oppressing them or something like <laughs> corporate America is, uh, I guess, oppressing them with all the gluten. And so they have this. It's kind of like they want to be a victim. This is the victimology mentality. Uh, the, I've even seen this with people that want to be um, introverts so bad. And some of them are, some of them aren't. But they like to claim uh, that they're somehow, they almost act like they're oppressed, like they're at such a disadvantage because they're introverts. Uh, this not, is not the way that your parents or, or your grandparents thought about anything, but this is the new victimology, and this is where it comes from. So you can go back and, and look at those quotes if you have any questions about that. Um, I, I do, do need to move along here a little bit um, and give you some terms. Uh, terms, microaggression, uh, mini racist event, uh, interest convergence or material determinism, um, intersectionality, uh, which we just talked about, or anti-essentialism white privilege, nativism. Uh, I'm just throwing these terms out there as terms you may have heard. Uh, some of them were academic, like interest convergence. Uh, some of them uh, you probably heard in just your normal day-to-day, -day, like white privilege. In case you're wondering about interest convergence, uh, this comes from Derek Bell, a critical race theorist who wrote a book on it in um, 1980, I believe. And uh, the idea is that um, a court case like Brown versus Board of Education wasn't really... Uh, the great moral um, development that it's made out to be. Actually, it was necessary by the hegemony to win the Cold War and to quell uh, resistance that um, uh, the African Americans, people of color at the time, were uh, the, the complaints. It was to shut them up. It was There was other motivations in this. And so their interests converged. But it was really, uh, it wasn't the moral breakthrough that we think of it as.
So um, ideology. So here's where we're really getting down into the nitty gritty. You know, if someone says, what is critical race theory? Well, here, here's some ideology. Here's, here's um, I don't know why it says five. <laughs> should say four. One, two, three, five. But then again, perhaps, perhaps PowerPoint, when I put this together, uh, was realizing the racist way in which I use numbers and counting. Um, did you see? Did you see that? I just a little tangent here. Uh, I posted it on uh, Conversations That Matter on Facebook uh, the other day. The professor uh, who wanted to say that uh, math is racist. Yeah, yeah. So, anyways, um, PowerPoint corrected my racist math. Uh, but there, there's four points here um, that are critical, fundamental to critical race theory. Racism is ordinary, not aberrational. So you, you just assume racism is everywhere, right? Our system of white over color ascendancy serves important purposes, both psychic and material for the dominant group. So we're getting a benefit if we're part of the majority culture. And uh, so we have an interest in, to not fight the patriarchy or uh, the white hegemony. Social construction thesis, number three. Uh, races are categories that society invents, manipulates, or retires when convenient. So there's a postmodern angle to this. How many times have you heard, and I've played the Southern Baptist professors who say, you know, you don't understand race is not, uh, has nothing to do with biology. It is all about power relationships. So that's where that comes from. And then number four, uh, the voice of color thesis, which is uh, that there, it, it's intersectionality basically. You know, there's just these unique perspectives that need to be listened to. Uh, they have a unique way of seeing truth. It's standpoint epistemology, which I'll talk about in a minute. And uh, they, you know, white person or male or, uh, straight person, you just, you just need to listen because they have truth. They have a way of looking at something that you don't have because you haven't had their experience. Experience determines truth. And that works in the culture we're in now, right? So those are that's the ideology of critical race theory. Now, how does this um, conflict with scripture uh, ethically? Ethically. I'm not talking, you know, epistemologically. Uh, I'm talking ethically. Uh, legal cases should be decided according to group identity instead of equality before the law. Now, that's what critical race theory says. Our Bible says, Exodus 23.3, nor shall you be partial to a man, uh, to a poor man in a dispute. Justice is blind. We used to all believe this in Western culture. Now that's a th becoming a thing of the past. Biblical hierarchy is oppressive. Of course, in Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 9, we, we have descriptions of differing responsibilities attached with relationships of husbands, wives, parents, children, and even slaves and masters, uh, which I usually apply to employees and employers today. Uh, but there is a hierarchy. God has ordained it, and, um, and we, we're supposed to live under it and work within it to be salt and light. Um, but uh, critical race theory uh, wants to overturn those things in a revolutionary way. And I've pointed this out before as well, but the only hierarchy that exists when critical race theory is through is basically the state, so the government, and the individual. Same with socialism. <laughs> you don't get rid of hierarchy, you just trade one hierarchy for another, and it's a more oppressive hierarchy. Uh, number three, children should pay for the sins of their parents. So this comes from the idea that uh, across even time and space, uh, these different, these cultural groups uh, there's a cohesion that they're they're all they all have the same way of looking at truth, 
because they have the same experience, they're all responsible for the same kinds of things, or this is why you can have someone who never experienced slavery or segregation, uh, not once in their life, you know, that was their uh, grandparents and their great, 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 great parent, grandparents. And they will, you know, say, but I, I am very oppressed, though. I am oppressed, you don't understand. Because across time, uh, those these experiences are kind of like handed down to you, and you are now part of them. It's part of your experience. And so um, if you've done something, if your parents did something wrong, or people who look like your parents, well, then you need to pay for it. Uh, but of course, Deuteronomy 24, 16 says, fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor shall sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. Number four, it is morally imperative to decenter majority cultures. This is a really key one, really key. Decenter majority cultures. Uh, so, so this would be the idea of if you're in the hegemony, uh, the white hegemony, so, so this the power structure that controls everything and uh, the all the assumptions of the, the culture are and the, or the society are, um, they all come from this power structure. Uh, if you're part of it, well, that needs to be knocked down a couple inches, maybe a couple feet, maybe a couple miles. <laughs> and those who are oppressed, they need to be brought up so that things are more uh, egalitarian, more equal. There's, there's equity. Now, uh, Deuteronomy 15.15, though, says, As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. This is the idea that uh, in ancient Israel, uh, Israel applied the laws of God to those who uh, did not grow up in that. It wasn't their culture. Uh, they had different practices, but they were still required to keep the same laws. And so this is not a biblical concept to just decenter because usually it, this is the critical legal theory angle. Usually it comes back to certain principles and laws. This is how they're trying to get uh, us to forsake the Constitution even. Uh, well, that was just part of a bunch of white guys who were just concerned for their own interests. It was the hegemony. It was the patriarchy that set up this country. And those founding documents, they need to be overturned or reinterpreted. Critical race theory supports that idea. Now, uh, there, there could be a lot more said here. I'm saving some of it because, um, like I said a few weeks ago, I have a plan uh, in place right now. We're just coordinating dates to have a professor um, actually from a Southern Baptist church, but someone who knows a lot about this has published many books. Uh, and, and he's going to talk with me about standpoint epistemology. So I'm going to give this a quick treatment, but uh, there's a very basic philosophical conflict uh, between critical race theory and scripture. And that is that critical race theory relies on standpoint epistemology. Standpoint epistemology, and this is, again, I'm quoting all of this from Delgado's book, um, if contextualism and critical theory teach anything, it is that we rarely challenge our own preconceptions, privileges, and the standpoint from which we reason. So there's an awareness. This is why uh, it's almost like a conversion experience. Have you ever heard uh, anyone say, wow, when I was reading Derrick Bell, or wow, when I went to the state university, or wow, when I worked with this oppressed group of people, you know, pick, pick whichever experience you want, it was the most eye-opening experience I've ever had in my entire life. I didn't realize how much privilege I had. I didn't realize it. That's because of this idea of standpoint epistemology, that you perceive everything based on the social group that you are from. So truth uh, goes through this filter. You, you see it through this filter. And um, essentially, you go through life without challenging it until 
someone who's oppressed challenges you or uh, you know indoctrination for <laughs> hundreds of hours in uh, in a semester uh, you know in studying all these things it, it it wakes you up so you see all the ways that you benefit oh man I, I can get a job more easily because man my my hair is the way it is or I'm right-handed man things are made more for me or man I can go on those roller coasters because I'm 510 and I'm not 68 it would be really hard if you were 68 to get on that man I got privilege and you start picking out all the advantages that you have right and you can do this with anyone this, this is the the interesting part to me is there are pros and cons to pretty much everything almost I mean there's there's exceptions if you're permanently paralyzed um, it's hard to see maybe why that can be a pro, but talk to, you know, Johnny Erickson Tata, see what the spiritual development that it has brought about in her life and forced her to think through and grapple with things she never would have. And this is the beauty of Christianity where when you are in Christ, all things, um, every single thing that you encounter is for the, the edification of the believer, for the building up of that believer. All things work out together for good to, to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And, uh, and that's the beauty of Christianity, really. Um, but I'm just saying in the real world, there's advantages and disadvantages to, to just about everything. But uh, this awakening experience gets you to focus on just one little slice of the pie if you're in majority culture, just the advantages you have. And then we're, we're going to then go to someone who's in minority culture or oppressed culture, and we're going to just keep reinforcing all the disadvantages they have. And if you're on social media, the algorithms will work this way. You know, if, you're, uh, if you're concerned about racism, now this will give you a never-ending stream, mostly bogus, <laughs> racist, quote-unquote, events. But it will keep reinforcing, I'm at a disadvantage, I'm at a disadvantage, I'm at a disadvantage. Forget that that's like a 30-second clip from something that happened in Utah that you weren't there to see and you don't even really know what happened, but it's reinforcing this idea that you're oppressed. And, and so um, standpoint epistemology, yeah. Uh, when that's challenged, uh, then you have this awakening experience. That's when you get woke. Guys, that's what, what woke means. Um, and, and you're borrowing from the perspective of someone else because from their standpoint, they're seeing all the privileges you have that you didn't see. Perspectivalism, the insistence on examining how things look from the perspective of individual actors helps us understand the predicaments of intersectional individuals. So perspectivalism, standpoint epistemology, they're pretty much talking about uh, the same exact thing there. And I will note that nowhere in scripture do you find this concept that some cultures have a greater um, access to truth than other cultures because of their level of oppression. In fact, even in Israel, you have King Solomon at the top of the world writing scripture. You have the prophets during the captivity. And Jesus doesn't say, well, they were oppressed during the captivity, so listen to that scripture more. No, all scripture is inspired by God. It's all scripture is profitable. Truth is invariable. It's absolute. It's unchanging. Um, it, it, it applies to everyone because it really flows from the nature and the person of God himself. And, uh, and he is the one that has created the uh, uniformity of nature and set up the laws of logic and laws of, laws of mathematics, which apply to everyone and everyone can access. Um, this, this would just break down everything. It would break down our whole approach to scripture. And, and really what it does, it, because it, it, it goes off of this idea that experience determines truth, 
um, it, it breaks down into smaller and smaller social groups. Intersectionality does this. I mean, think of um, someone who's white, who lives in Appalachia, parents, let's say, were on drugs, they don't have access to medical care. They wouldn't feel like they have white privilege, not like the guy whose parents uh, sent him to Harvard and he grew up in Massachusetts, in Boston or something. Like, there, there are so many variables. If you take it internationally, it gets ridiculous. There's so many variables that um, th this will break down into each individual's experience is different than another individual's experience. And we're just gonna gauge, I guess, their level of oppression to find out whether we should listen or and believe or whether we should uh, speak to speak truth to power or whatever. So, so, so this is just an attack on truth on its face. And I'm looking forward to having um, a professor on soon to get into more depth on this, but it would destroy the very uh, foundation of studying scripture, which of course we all care about as Christians. Uh, now here, here are some examples, and I wanna do an episode where I get into this more. Uh, I don't have time to, to get into it very deeply, but ideas have consequences, guys. And this is what I'm afraid that folks like Al Mohler and folks like Greenway, perhaps, Danny Aiken, um, Jason Allen, uh, you know, and maybe outside the SBC even, uh, we, we might start finding this. People who will say things against critical race theory, but then they're okay with these th these specific um, concepts. Th this is where there's a disconnect and we have to show the relationship. So the multi-ethnic church model, uh, well, that is consistent with critical race theory. Uh, it doesn't, I mean, I grew up in a church that had multiple ethnicities and we had the greatest potlucks. I mean, I loved it. But the, the multi-ethnic church model basically says as an end in and of itself, you need to make diversity a priority in your church. And if it's not, uh, somehow, you, sometimes people will say some, you need to repent because you're in sin somehow. It, it totally outside the scope of what scripture says a church should be doing. Um, it's not, you know, diversity happens as you preach the gospel, but to make that part of the mission of the church is it must look like the church in heaven now. I mean, there's a reason it's in heaven <laughs> that the church looks like every tribe, every tongue, and nation. I mean, if you have a church in the middle of Iowa, I don't, you're not going to get remote tribes on the other part of the earth to come. Um, now, some will say, well, it just needs to reflect your community. But again, you know, hopefully it should. I, I would love that. Um, you know, I grew up in a church that I, I would say did reflect the community more or less. Uh, it may be even more diverse than the community, to be honest. But we still, if you're trying to somehow decenter majority culture um, by this multi-ethnic church model, and, and that's your purpose for pursuing it, it's like, hey, we we live in an area that's mostly white, and uh, and, and our church seems to be mostly white, and that's wrong, and you're raging against it, which I've seen numerous examples of then uh, that is consistent with critical race theory. And, um, and I'd like to do an episode sometime and get into more detail on why I think that. But I'm just going to give you sp some specifics here to just think through. Quotas for influential positions. How often have you heard someone like Beth Moore say, I'm trying to diversify my library. I don't want all those straight white Europeans teaching me theology. I mean, that's where that comes from, the decentering of majority culture. We need these other perspectives somehow to know what the Bible really says. And, and of course, you see this now in... Um, the hiring practices of denominations in many cases. I mean, it's, it's a well-known fact, pretty much. If you're not well-connected and you're a white guy and you have a PhD, you're probably not gonna, you don't have as much of a chance of getting a job based on your qualifications because it's not based on that. Uh, it's, it's very partially based on that. There's, there's other things now, other um, outward 
uh, things you need uh, to uh, qualities uh, in order to get the job in many cases. Um, and, and of course, that brings me to affirmative action. Uh, we need to, uh, I mean, that's the Kingdom Diversity Program. I've talked about that before. Um, again, same kind of basic goal here. Uh, the, the decentering of majority culture, uh, disparaging majority culture's heritage. So this goes back to, um, uh, th there, there seems to be a practice as of late. I've, I've seen more of it. I haven't focused it on as much as perhaps I should, but um, I, I've seen many lectures about, uh, and sometimes it's even offhanded remarks. It's not the lecture topic isn't about this, but uh, the founding fathers are disparaged um, uh, or, or the, the race to get rid of monuments. I mean, some prominent Southern Baptists have been involved in that. And that is part of the same thing. It's, it's ripping down the hegemony. Um, calling for punishment without evidence. Um, I probably at some point should have someone come and do a whole Paige Patterson episode. I mean, look, I, I, I'm not going to pretend to know every detail about that. But what I do know is uh, initially with uh, the accusations against Paige Patterson that came from an incident that happened, I think it was like 20 years ago at Southeastern, there really hasn't been, there, there's really no way to verify uh, everything that took place there. But there. But I do remember immediately there was a rush to judge Paige, Paige Patterson. I was on campus at the time. And uh, it's the rush that I'm talking about. Patterson's not really the issue. It's the, uh, you know, we, we heard this sad story. It came, I think it was the Washington Post judge right there it's it this is this is what happened even though uh and, and punish it's not just judge it's punish um so anyway uh soft complementarianism uh i i do view that as a uh kind of a synthesis it's it's a halfway measure getting us towards egalitarianism but it's a way to kind of decenter the patriarchy um the concept of generational sin that that flows from this idea that there's this uh, cohesive um, cultural, uh, I you know, identity that people carry with them, uh, and whether they weren't part of crimes that some of their ancestors may have been part of, or or not even crimes, but just things that they were you know on the oppressor end of the scale, uh, somehow they bear the weight for that, and vice versa. Um, you know, generational, uh, I guess, favor. <laughs> Or if you're not, if you're an oppressed class and you know, 200 years ago, your ancestors were oppressed. So, so these are all specific instances and I could probably sit here all day. I could probably do an episode three hours long where I just give examples of these and show the connection to critical race theory. doesn't mean everyone advocating this is a critical race theorist, but it means that these ideas are consistent and the people who do advocate them are advocating an aspect of critical race theory. Um, as it stands today. And they could be pulling from another tradition that critical race theory borrows from, you know, but it's still part of, of this uh, postmodern um, idea that critical race theory is. So um, with that being said, I want to highlight something at the end here, and this is probably uh, the most important part of this video, perhaps. Um, I was privileged, <laughs> for lack of a better term, uh, to uh, travel down to North Carolina uh, in my old stomping grounds by Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary and I uh, did some interviews. Uh, one of them was with a gentleman uh, named James High. And James and I had talked uh, on the phone beforehand and um, I uh, you know, respect him very deeply uh, for doing this. Uh, he, he was, I think, nervous. Um, but I talked to him and his wife about what had happened. And I just told them, guys, this would be really beneficial 
uh, to hear your story. Um, I hear a lot of stories, a lot of email gets sent to me about crazy things, even crazier than this one, guys. And a lot of the times, you know, I want to talk about it and I can't because uh, there's just no way to verify any of it um, or the person just, they don't want it talked about. Usually nine times out of 10, that's what happens. John, this is what happened and I, I don't want anyone knowing because I've just been through too much and I don't want to be attacked more. And um, it breaks my heart, to be honest with you. Uh, but James uh, was brave and um, decided that uh, he would do an interview uh, with me and uh, I'm going to show you that interview. But it, it relates back to this idea of generational sin and uh, disparaging a group of people because of their skin tone, uh, because of things allegedly uh, that their ancestors uh, may have done. Um, in this case, uh, James, his last name is High, and it was shared with another member of the congregation who also had a last name named High. And uh, it was insinuated that, well, his ancestors must have owned uh, this family's ancestors. And it's a ridiculous, historically, it's ridiculous. It doesn't mean that. And uh, James uh, actually went and looked it up, found out, no, he doesn't have slaveholding ancestors, but this was the charge that was made uh, against him. And um, essentially, that he should apologize. This is something that, that he did, uh, something that he, a guilt that he carries with him uh, because of allegedly what his ancestors may have done. And this is tearing at the unity of the church. Um, I know that this church plant doesn't exist anymore. James did not want to give the details as far as at this point, uh, that may change, but at this point, he doesn't, he didn't want, this is a part of his life he's left. Uh, this, this happened, I think now we're talking two and a half years ago or so, but it was during a time I was at Southeastern and I knew the social justice fires were raging and, um, and it doesn't surprise me that this happened. In fact, I've had numerous people from that area contact me and tell me things uh, that happened at their church. And, um, and so James is, is one who was brave enough to come on camera and talk about it. Uh, he doesn't want to talk about the pastor either at this point and, and, um, and who the pastor was uh, just because he doesn't have a personal conflict and he doesn't want to uh, really revisit that. He, him and his family have moved on at this point. And, um, but this is about... Uh, highlighting where this ideology, this critical race theory can lead. And, um, and it's not pretty, guys. And there's many more examples of this. And you're going to be seeing some more of them in the coming weeks and months as we lead up to the release of the Enemies Within the Church film. And by the way, um, there, I should say that there was about a five and a half minute version of this interview posted at enemieswithinthechurch.com. You can go there while you're there. Give them a donation uh, for... Um, providing the cameras for this. Uh, but this is the extended cut. This is the long uh, form interview. And I'd like you to hear what James High has to say. And, uh, and that will be the end of the show when the interview is over. So God bless you. Thank you for all your support. And, um, and, and before I forget also, if you become a Patreon supporter of mine, you will get a free book. You're going to get Mark David Hall's book uh, about the Christian founding of the United States. So, uh, message me. Uh, if you become a Patreon supporter, you can find the link uh, in the info section. You can also find the links uh, to um, Owen Strand's articles, and uh, you can find the link to um, the short version of the interview I'm about to show you. Here we go. Okay. What is your name? My name is Troy High. And Troy, uh, where do you live? I live in Raleigh, North Carolina. 
And Troy, you went to a church in Raleigh, North Carolina area and um, experienced some issues. How many um, years ago was this? About two years ago. Okay. What happened? Uh, my wife and I had joined a church plant in Raleigh that had broken off or been sponsored rather by uh, our church in Wake Forest that we'd attended for many years. And uh, as time passed, we we started to see changes in the way that people talked about what was on the news and how that influenced their conversations, how it influenced their um, discussions of the gospel and how, how they saw the gospel influenced um, by things they saw in the news that were distressing to them. Uh, my wife and I were, were very open about being conservatives. Uh, we certainly didn't push for any political agendas or candidates, but it was, it was known to everyone in the congregation that we seemed to have a difference of opinion uh, than, than many others. Um, eventually, it came to a climax when uh, one of the church elders and his wife met with me and my wife in our home to try to resolve some, some issues and to discuss them. Uh, we, unfortunately, instead of it coming to a point of being cathartic or, or helpful, it really brought things up to a to a point where some very harmful things were said. Um, I mentioned to him that as a result of our small group meetings that I didn't think that he really was a complementarian because of, of the way that he had described how he runs his household with his wife and daughters. He was very angry and I think in that moment he turned to me and said, uh, you are in generational sin because your ancestors owned the ancestors of another congregant who had the same last name as me and my wife. Now this was a pastor who told you this. Uh, in your home, you're involved in this church on some level? Were you leading Bible studies or what was yes. your level of involvement? We, we were uh, community group leaders. Uh, I think of one of four community group leaders and held the, the meetings in our home. Yeah. Um, Did you I, have a good relationship with your pastor before this occurrence? I think at times there was there was friction um, because of this particular uh, pastor and his wife attending our community group. Mm -hmm. um, there's there's some friction in that they they were they were wanting to influence the teaching or or to try to change the way that we did things. So um, I think part of the the tension was feeling very much like we were told we would have freedom to. To teach, okay. but not feeling that it was really there. So this is um, a night when community group happened, and your pastor brings this up. Is this in the middle of the group meeting, or is this afterward with just you and your wife? This was just uh, with my wife and uh, with with he and his wife that were there. Okay, so it's it's both couples, uh, he, he and his wife, you and mm -hmm. your wife, and this is when he brings up this idea that you are in generational sin because you have you share a last name with someone else in the church who is a minority is that correct that is correct okay now after um, the, your pastor had said this to you what was your response I was I was almost speechless to be honest I I didn't have a, this this was as the conversation was drawing to a close it was almost like a, a parting shot as he was leaving um, I did not have a good response. I think my mind went to, what if, what if it is possibly true <laughs> that, that, that there was some connection in the past? 
but I did not at all feel uh, that uh, I was in sin. I did not believe that at all. Um, ironically, this couple was one of the couples that we were very close to, um, that we shared meals with many times. Um, my daughter had gone over and been like a mother's helper in their home. There was absolutely no indication that there was any ill will whatsoever between us. And, and this pastor seemed to be, um, I don't know, he seemed to be the one that had the ill will. And I, I really was, sh- was shocked uh, yeah. at this accusation that I was somehow in sin that wasn't covered by Christ's atonement. That's understandable. After this took place, did your relationship change with your pastor? I, I do believe that this this was a, an event that really made me feel that I was not welcome in this congregation. Um, this this particular uh, pastor was one of, of two, and he was very influential and uh, worked at the seminary. And and that seminary is Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. That is correct. Okay, so he he worked at the seminary and um, did. Did the other pastor at the church also share his uh, concern that you were in generational sin? I never heard anything uh, related to, to that at all uh, okay. from this pastor. Uh, we were very close to that to that pastor. Um, I, unfortunately, I think the nature of the church plant and its finances and the dynamics, um, and I believe the influence uh, from certain parties, um, made, made this particular pastor be influential in the finances and the okay. running of the church. Did the family uh, that shared a last name with you, were they expecting an apology or were they concerned that you had wronged them or were they oblivious to all of this? I believe that we were oblivious to okay. all of this and they may they may know nothing uh, you know, about this exchange that occurred. Okay. Uh, did the pastor or anyone else encourage you to apologize or bring this up later on after it was brought up that night at your house? Not specifically. Um, I do think that uh, after this event or this exchange occurred, we, we, we could tell being in the church services that, um, that the, the other people in the congregations, many of them seem to have taken a different attitude towards us and we're very standoffish at that point. We, we, we don't know for certain, but we believe that there may have been discussions that went on behind the scenes mm-hmm. where we were somewhat marked out or, or somehow labeled in some derogatory way. Did you approach your pastor or leadership after the, the night that you had um, heard about it and talked to your pastor um, later or no? So the, the other pastor um, who, who noticed that we were not attending as frequently as he had been, did come to our home uh, and met with us and was inquiring about what's going on. Um, uh, we, we did give him some feedback regarding concerns uh, that we felt like we didn't fit in with the congregation anymore. Uh, and that was maybe somewhat related to the fact that we were conservatives politically and we were not ashamed to say that. Uh, and, and But we did not specifically mentioned this conversation with this elder uh, directly. We felt like we were, um, we felt like we were going to break the church up if we were trying to uh, set about some kind of church discipline. What kinds of other things did you hear, either from the pulpit or from church leadership, uh, that made you feel 
that you did not fit in as a conservative? Hmm. Uh, I think that you know there were definitely uh, events that occurred starting in 2014 up into 2016 uh, where you know things that would be trending on Twitter would be mentioned, um, especially some of the more prominent news stories. Police shootings. Police shootings, Trayvon Martin. Okay. Um, the, as the election cycle began leading up, there were, there were many you know, comments around us where people were very clearly uh, opposed to what we believed and, and were not afraid to, to, to state it very vocally. Uh, was there an effort at all to openly vote Democrat or get involved in uh, reparations or, or some kind of a leftist cause, or was it just opinions that people held? I would say it's more. It was more the opinions that people held about you know the role of government, um, wealth redistribution, uh, immigrants versus sojourners versus. Uh, you know, the, the documentation status of various people, that was definitely brought up. Would you say that leadership was favorable to uh, illegal immigration uh, and uh, so forms of socialism then? Uh, I don't know that I ever heard of a real uh, direct statement about socialism, but certainly the idea of a welfare state and redistribution was, was talked about that that was a good thing and that the government role in terms of helping people financially was something that instead of being the family and the church was the government should take a central role should be a prominent role was there any outside involvement from southeastern baptist theological seminary or uh, neighboring churches uh, in yeah in influencing uh this situation at all uh we did, we did have seminary professors that were guest preachers uh, that would, would do a sermon. Um, I, I believe that there was some influence uh, due to uh, one of, the, one, one of the, my fellow congregants that was, a, uh, was, I guess, completing an MDiv at Southeastern who had a particular professor. He shared with me some of his papers that had been graded and it was difficult not to read that paper and the marks and the comments and not feel that social justice was being defined as a positive thing that the church needed to to push and advocate for. So you see the influence of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary as a contributing factor then to uh, this pastor's willingness to accuse you of generational sin? I do think that um, because this, this person uh, was an employee of SEBTS and um, I, I do believe that that he, he was influenced in some ways by teaching or, or maybe the, the, uh, the spirit of what was going on there that influenced his decision to, to bring these, these matters up. How did this impact your family, your wife, and your children? We were devastated. Um, it was very difficult because I would uh, often come home from church and sit down with my wife and kids and uh, try to deconstruct some things that had been said or some things that had happened that I felt like were you know, above and beyond the, the, the pure gospel message and trying to kind of deconstruct it. I, I would definitely feel that um, because of my ethnicity, 
that you know, there was something going on in the news media that that there was a blanket treatment that that I was somehow associated with people that were not even believers and living in another state. Some incident occurred, but yet it was brought up in a manner that that made you feel that you need to search your heart, you need to search your mind, and find sin that that seemed to be assumed to be there. Um, and so. Over time, it, it was difficult to, to stay in the congregation because of the, the need to listen to the sermon and then try to sit down with my family and, and show where I disagreed and try to, try to keep that from influencing them. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.